You are listening to From Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul, episode 170. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul, and I am in addiction recovery. What is up? Today is 2000 and one day sober. Totally meant to post something about this on social media yesterday, but I was too busy living my sober, awesome addiction recovery life and totally spaced it out. Um, I just had a really amazing day uh, celebrating 2000. And it wasn't like I stepped out and did something super crazy to celebrate it. I just lived my life. I was able to go to the gym like I normally do and that on Wednesdays, and that was super amazing. Um, I ended up painting uh, my nightstands that are going to go into uh, my office next to my really big, gigantic blue desk. <laughs> you know, my love for blue because of my association with the University of Florida and uh, my coaching chair I do in my videos is blue. And so now my nightstands will be blue and the office is coming together and I you know, organize my bathroom and my, in my closet. And, uh, you know, I just did what would really just be considered like normal things, but they mean so much to me. And that's what I want to discuss with us today is that when I look back at my very first day, 2000 sober days since, 2000 sober days, my very first sober day, July, I'm sorry, January 13th of 2017. It was a Friday morning. I woke up like I usually do at 5.30 to go to my hotel job at 25 Degrees in Hollywood and went there and to open it up. And I'll never forget uh, when I first saw Ron, who's the sunshine I shout out to at the end of the show. His nickname was Sunshine. And uh, he had been sober for like 30-some years. And he knew my drinking was out of control. And he had talked to me many times about going to AA and getting sober. And so he was the very first person I ever saw. When I was sober, and he was the very first person I even told. And in fact, I didn't tell anybody else in my life for weeks and weeks. Um, it was he was the only one who knew, other than Kaiser Permanente, where I checked myself into the outpatient uh, treatment program. And I remember, I mean, <laughs> the detox that was happening to my body—it was wretched. I mean, the night before, you know, I tried to have my last drink and I couldn't hold it down, and I was forcing wine and beer and. and liquor and I mean smoking pot trying to get the stomach to just be okay taking in any kind of fluid I was trying to drink water and Gatorade and nothing nothing would stay down and my body just felt like it it was just it was dying and I still went to work you're right gotta pay the bills can't you know wasn't gonna call in or anything I just remember seeing him and being like this is gonna be pretty bad detox but it's going to be the last one that I ever have to experience. And what I look back on when I, when I remember that conversation with him, which is very vivid still in my life, even 2001 days later, is that it wasn't the first time I tried to stop. Uh, a lot of people who hit me up and listen to this show, uh, apparently I haven't made it clear enough or pointed out, or perhaps it's just been lost in the shuffle of 170 episodes is that I was a hardcore alcoholic for 22 years. 
And that was the entirety of my drinking experience. I mean, the moment alcohol touched my lips, I was not drinking appropriately. Um, I started drinking a little bit in the fall of my senior year in high school. Um, and even then drink too much and puke and black out and pass out. And then the girl I was dating at the time was basically like, if you keep drinking, we're done. And I liked her more than I liked alcohol. So alcohol went away and then, uh, we broke up towards the end of my senior year. And then when we graduated, it was all unlike Donkey Kong and, the moment it hit my lips, I mean, out of control. There was like no off switch. It was just like, draw, 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 draw. Of course, I couldn't handle very much. So four shots in, I'd already be sick. But over the course of years, I, of course, I became very professional alcoholic and drug addict. And it was like, let's see how many things I can put in my body today. And I'd be excited that I was able to consume like eight different kinds of drugs and alcohol at any given night and still drive home. Like that was what I hung my hat on was my ability to throw down and, and still make it home in one piece. Didn't always play out that way, but that was certainly the goal. So over the years, I mean, there'd be times where I'd stop drinking for three months, six months, nine months. I mean, once I stopped drinking for a year and stopped having sex for that entire year. So there was no alcohol and there was no sex because I bad relationship. We drank too much. We used too much with each other. And I thought, maybe I need to change. Now, the issue that I stepped into when I made that decision is one, it was just sobriety and it was short term. Yeah, I know for some of y'all thinking about being sober for even one year seems like, you know, climbing up Mount Everest. Um, And certainly it was not easy that entire year to, you know, not um, hook up or not go out to the bars, but it was still something that I did. It was a commitment I made to myself to do one full year. And there was a, there was a deadline to it. There was a finish line. And so I'd do it for the year and then I'd ease back into drinking or dating. And then, you know, three, six, nine, how many ever days, weeks, months before you know it, I was right back to the same old behavior because I didn't heal anything. I didn't heal the trauma from my childhood, watching my mom die of Crohn's, my mom marry another man and take me away from the family that I knew and loved in Oklahoma City. I didn't heal from all those times I saw my mom in the hospital hooked up to the, the, the life-saving apparatuses that were making sure she breathed. Uh, all the times that I saw her sickly and looking at me like, I am barely holding on here, but just for you, I will make sure I live another day. I mean, she told me on multiple occasions, it was knowing that she didn't want to leave her two children motherless. That's what gave her the fuel to continue to go, to continue to live. And then when she announced the divorce from my stepdad, um, going into the summer uh, before my freshman year in college, that was just like that one little thread that needed to be pulled. She moved out, moved to Florida, left me in Indiana. And it was just like, well, let's just burn it all down. And so I just started to throw down. And over the years, I would try to quit. I, you know, I'd, I'd go a week. I'd go two. I mean, it was 50 times I tried this. So by the time January 13th, 2017 rolled around, I'd already tried hundreds of other ways to at the very least cut back and monitor, let alone stop and never touch it again. It was... I mean, we're talking like time 217 or something. By the time I got to that morning where my body was like, look, dude, last night we woke up in a shit tub and we're going to die if you don't fucking stop. And I didn't want to die. I wanted to live differently. And I just, I didn't know how. I didn't know how. 
And I'd done everything in my power to change everything in my life except the drinking. I'd cut out the cocaine. I'd cut out the ecstasy. I'd cut out the LSD, the ketamine, the Valium, the Percocets, the the Xanax. I mean, I cut everything out except for the booze. I thought, surely booze is legal. I can figure this out. And I tried that for a couple of years. 2012 was not a great year, but 2015 and 2016 were shit years for me. I am lucky I'm alive after the amount of alcohol I consumed. It's like there was no off switch. So when I look back and I think about all the times I tried to quit, all the times I tried to to cut back and to monitor and just be a normal drinker, it wasn't for me. And finally on January 12th, waking up in that shit tub, I realized that the one thing I'd never really truly tried with any level of conviction, determination, with any real solid, like solid backbone, I'm going to do this, was to just stop the madness, to just stop the drinking. I was so sad I had to stop drinking. I was so sad I had to stop drinking. It was like I was breaking up with a partner that I'd had for 22 years that had been with me through thick and thin and, you know, sure, caused most of the shit that was going on in my life to not go well, right? But still, it had always been there. The one, the one constant I had was Allie Alcohol. That was my nickname for it. So I'm going to go hang out with Allie tonight. Allie Alcohol. And it reminds me of the scene in Half Baked with Dave Chappelle, where at the end he's getting ready to throw the joint over the bridge so he can keep dating the woman named Mary Jane. And it's like where she's talking to him, and at the end he throws her, and she's yelling, you'll be back. I have no doubt Allie Alcohol thought I'd be back. But it was the one variable, the one thing I had never truly decided and stepped into as something I would never do again. I'd started working out. I started eating healthy. I joined clubs and organizations and I got into improv and stand up and I took acting classes and I was interviewing people on red carpets and I was a sports reporter and I was the lead news anchor for a, a morning talk show in Los Angeles. I mean, I was just checking cool things off the box that made my life feel exotic, that made me feel like I was accomplishing something, but I never took the alcohol out. I did things for my career, but I never stepped into my mind, into my heart, and thought about the emotions that were causing the behavior to begin with. When I took the motorcycle trip around the country in 2012, I quit my job at the SLS in Beverly Hills where I was making like 80 grand a year being a morning waiter. It was super fancy, super duper rich, famous people were always in there. I mean, the list of the famous people I saw while I worked at that hotel is is longer than my arm if I wrote it in a four-point font. It was insane. But I was making too much money, and I was getting too comfortable, and I was drinking too much, and I was using drugs too much, and it just wasn't working. So I had this genius idea that I was going to quit the job, spend every dime in my bank account, drive around the country on a motorcycle and spread my mom's ashes and shoot the entire event like it was a documentary and then 
release this documentary. It was going to make me famous. I was going to go on Ellen DeGeneres' show and talk to her about how I honor my mother's life and memory by spreading these ashes. And then the night before I left, I bartended at this rich person's party and I drank a little too much wine. And I got home and I was trying to pack up my motorcycle, knocked it over, cracked one of my saddlebags, woke up hungover so I didn't leave on time. It was a hellacious day up the five from L.A. to San Francisco. I had to stop multiple times. I'd never ridden a motorcycle with that much shit on it. And I was super hungover the whole time. So that night when I got to my friend's house, I got a six pack of beer and drank that up to feel somewhat normal. So I could drive to Portland the next day where I continued to drink. And by the time I got to Seattle to visit my friend there, I'd already you know, been the first four or five days of this trip. I had been intoxicated every single one of those days. And when I left Seattle, I swore to myself that I would get sober and I'd stop drinking throughout the trip. And I didn't do that. I started carrying bottles of vodka in my motorcycle jacket and literally drinking these bottles of vodka as I rode the motorcycle across the country. I was intoxicated the entire time. It was like four straight months. I took shitty video. I didn't do the social media the right way. I spread my mom's ashes in tons of places. And I've got amazing pictures of the kick-ass places. Over 100 places I spread her ashes, 29 states. It was a kick-ass trip. But I was drunk the whole time. What I wanted to come out of that trip didn't come out of that trip because I was so drunk. I didn't journal. I remember wanting to shoot you know, iPad videos every night when I got to my campsite, which I barely ever camped because I was drinking so much during the night that I was sleeping until 10, 11 in the morning. So I was waking up late and I was riding into the night and just staying at Motel 6s and burning through my budget, not shooting videos at the end of the day, talking about all the cool things I stopped at along the way because I had time. I didn't have time. I had to get to the next city. I had to get to the next location. I had to keep this makeup made up schedule that I never actually followed. I spent too much time in some places and not enough time in other places. And I was drunk the entire time. So many regrets about my drinking, but ruining that trip because of alcohol is something that I do not forgive myself for lightly. I still carry some weight of shame and guilt about that summer and what I didn't accomplish because of my drinking. So many different things in my life, alcohol got in the way of me actually fulfilling the way that I wanted them to be fulfilled. 2012 led to 13, 14, 15, and it's almost like I, I, you know, I went off and got a job making almost the same amount of money I was making at the SLS, but working even less now. Still mornings, so I'd get smashed at night and have to wake up, and it was like day after day after day after day of just feeling like like the insides of my body were being yanked out through my ass. I might go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday without drinking, but man, here come Friday night, smashed on Saturday, smashed on Sunday, recover on Monday, go back to work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday morning, and just complete the cycle over and over and over again, and it just became my life for years. So when people have this made-up world of what I've gone through in order to get to where I am today, as if I just woke up on January 13th and was like, that's it, okay, 22 years, let's just go off and create the best life ever. That's fucking bullshit. 
nothing about what I have accomplished over here has been easy. And I say all this not looking for empathy or applause or none of that BS. I say that because I feel like so many of you listen to this show and think that you're just going to snap your fingers and magically all the emotional trauma, all the sadness, all the heartache, all the shame and the guilt and the frustration and the triggering moments and the activations that, that cause you to want to go back to your old behaviors, like it's just magically going to disappear. Because it doesn't. Yes, neuro-linguistic programming has opened me up to the power of the mind and how to shift my, my perspective and my perceptions of what's happening around me. It, it, it's shown me how to see the world for as real as my mind will allow me to see it. Right? There are definitely some techniques where it's like immediately I can take out a triggering moment. Like I can look at a Jameson bottle and I don't get triggered by it anymore. I released it. I did some cool stuff and boom, now I see it. It's just a green bottle, but it's, it's still not like I just snapped my fingers and got to 2001 days. And when, I know some of this might just seem like it's, it's just conscious stream of thought. And it really is. I, I just think it's so important for those of you who might literally be at day one, or maybe you had a year and now you're back to day one. Or you had a year and now you're back to day 117 and you're pissed off that you're not at day 492. Whatever your situation is, understand it's your path. It is your path. Tens and tens and tens of times I tried to quit. Tens and tens and tens of times I went back. This last time was just the last time, but it wasn't the first last time. It was just the last, last time. And there is a difference. The first, last time, you know, it was a joke. I'm not an alcoholic. Alcoholics go to meetings is what I'd always say as I took my shot of Jaeger and smashed back a couple madrasas before I chugged a pitcher of beer and did a fucking couple key bumps in the bathroom. Oh, this is normal behavior. I'm in college. Why not? It's Tuesday. I don't have class tomorrow. Let's throw down. But it wasn't normal behavior. Anybody who's lived that life and then looked at themselves in the mirror the next day knows that's not normal behavior. There's five stages to this whole addiction recovery process. I'm trying, and this, I mean, the, my show notes, are, we are not even following show notes at this point. Um, it's pre contemplation, contemplation, action. Um, hold on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause real fast. I, mean, I want to make sure I get this right. And we're back. So it is, and it's what I thought it was. I was not sure about the maintenance part. So five stages of recovery. You can Google this. Literally, that's all I did. I just typed in <laughs> stages of recovery and it pops right up. It's pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. Now, long way, 18 minutes to finally get to this part, but this is something that we talked about so much in the Certified Recovery Support Specialist programs I just took here in Alabama and Tennessee, is that what stage are you in? Because by the time I got to January 13th, that morning where I woke up and I was like, okay, this is the last detox I'll ever have to go through, so let's fucking make it count. I'd already gone through pre-contemplation. I'd already gone through contemplation and I'd already gone through preparation. January 13th was the first day of action. There are three out of these five stages that aren't even, 
action part. When you actually step into sobriety. First, there's pre-contemplation. Right? That's when you don't even think that there's a problem. You're not even really contemplating. They call it pre-contemplation, but it's like those random thoughts where you're like, maybe I should stop drinking so much as you do your sixth double shot of vodka on a Tuesday night before you go to the bar. As you're shotgunning beers in the shower, you know, singing to your music, and, you know, hop out and make sure you hit that, make sure you hit the straw plate, sit next to the shower. Don't get it wet, but make sure you hit it because you got a party. It's that pre-contemplation. If you're listening to this show, very, you're already past pre-contemplation. Pre-contemplation people aren't even searching for shows like this. They're just throwing it down. They're just having a good time. They're not, they don't, they're, in their world, there is no problem. By the time you've made it to this show, you're at least at contemplation stage. You're contemplating a life without alcohol, drugs, food, whatever your vice is, you have found me. Or you've found other shows that have led you to me. Whatever it's taken, you are in the contemplation phase. So many people want to beat themselves up because they're not already in the action phase or the maintenance st- stage when that's asinine, guys, gals, y'all whatever socially acceptable at this point in life. It's like you are in whatever stage you're in. It is your path. It took me 22 years to get to the action stage. So if you're beating yourself up because you don't have 2001 days, I wish I'd have started January 13th of 2017. Look at all the days I'd have. Look, it is part of your process. Sure. <laughs> boy, oh boy, oh boy. If I could go back to, you know, I don't know, uh, what, what's a very seminal day? I think it was like September 9th of, of uh, 1994. Uh, me and a couple of friends from uh, my high school town, they came up for the Nine Inch Nails show at Ball State's campus and convinced me smoking marijuana in my dorm room where, on a non-smoking floor was a good idea and almost got kicked out of college for that one. And we went to the Nine Inch Nails show. We went nuts, had a great time. So much so that we actually went to the Louisville or the Louisville concert and gobbled down on a bunch of acid and did it again like two days later. And I remember it's like it was in those the, that little stretch where I decided I was going to start smoking cigarettes regularly. And I remember looking at cigarettes at the at the um, doorway to Painter Hall, where I, um, which was my dorm room, and thinking to myself. If I continue smoking cigarettes when I'm not drinking, if I light up this, and at the time it was Marlboro Menthol Light 100s, and I remember going, and I remember looking at this cigarette going, if you light this right now and walk out uh, side this building and you light this on the way to class, like you are now smoking cigarettes when you're not drinking. Like this is going to become a habit you're going to have to contend with for the rest of your life. And I remember I'd be like, meh, fuck it. I'll figure it out later. And that was pretty much... That was pretty much as much thought as I put into a lifetime of being addicted to nicotine, right? And that's pretty much as much as much effort as I put into the the idea of becoming a lifetime alcoholic. I fucking I'll deal with it later. That's why I do the college success habits show is to try to get to the younger kids and say, wait, 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 wait. How about we don't just say fuck it? Let's leave it. I'll figure it out later. Let's actually think about the decisions we're making now because I promise you, if you aren't thinking about them. You're just going to trance through life and you're going to wake up in your 40s in a shit tub and wonder what in the hell happened to my 20s, (laughs) let alone my 30s. 
So if you found this, you're already into the contemplation stage. And for me, 2015 and 2016 were the contemplation stages, like the real, the real contemplation stages. Like, yeah, I thought about a life without alcohol and drugs. I, like I said, I cut back, I, I cut out the coke and the ecstasy and the LSD and all those pills and stuff. I started weaning myself off those, and I, I just told myself I aged out of them. But if they weren't in the picture, alcohol would be fine. Well, 2015 and 2016 was a bad year. Um, it's that was the contemplation. I switched my insurance from HealthNet to Kaiser. Um, at the beginning of 2016, when um, I was allowed, or yeah, beginning it was in 2016 because I, I, that was nope, nope. I broke my leg um, in August of 2016, and that was such a hellacious experience. I told myself I was gonna, I needed to quit drinking at some point. I was gonna switch to Kaiser because they had a great alcohol recovery program, and because all of their doctor's offices were on the same campus, the same area, um, if I ever injured my leg again or injured a part of my body, everything would be in one area. Because with HealthNet, the offices were all over Los Angeles, and it was very disorganized. And because it was all these different doctors talking to one another, the care I received on my leg was less than good. Um, so bad, in fact, that I still carry some some issues with both of my knees because of what happened. Um, it was a skydiving accident. I think I've talked about it before, and then a flag football incident two weeks later. And that's what left me stuck in my house for three months and drinking myself to death. And so it was in 2016 that I started contemplating, let's switch my insurance. And I broke my leg and definitely knew I needed to switch my insurance. My sister went into rehab um, in Colorado and I went and visited her. Um, I started to really, you know, I mean, when you wake up in the L.A., downtown L.A., drunk tank, um, or you, you get jumped and you lose your car, or you uh, black out at the Denver airport and end up on a train going to fucking nowhere. Um, there, that was black out in Hollywood and wake up sleeping in an alley without your shoes. You know, have to break into your house multiple times because you lose your keys and crawl through windows and break your roommate's desk. Like, there's enough of these things stack up, and you're like, it might be time to make a big change here. <laughs> So if you're in the contemplation stage, then that's where you're finding yourself at right now. But it's not like you should beat yourself up because you're only in contemplation. Because as you move through this contemplation and you start thinking about the things that you can do, you will start preparing. You're preparing by continuing to listen to this show. You might be preparing by changing over your insurance or looking to get insurance so that you can pay for a treatment facility. Uh, you might be preparing by slowly monitoring your drinking and weaning yourself down off of cigarettes or drugs or alcohol, whatever that might be. Right? Your contemplation and preparation stages very much meld together, and mine did, and that's how I, I feel pretty confident in saying that your contemplation and preparation stages, they start to do this dance with one another, where you contemplate things, and then you prepare, and then you prepare a little bit more, and you contemplate. And maybe you take four or five days off from drinking, and you're super proud of yourself, but then you, you, know, you go back on the weekends, and you're still having a few here or there. But you're contemplating, and you're preparing, and right now in my office, I'm doing this sort of dance back back and forth, contemplating and preparing, contemplating and preparing. But without this contemplation and preparation, it makes the action stage supremely more complicated. Don't get me wrong. There are certainly those people who wake up and just say, you know what, that's it, I'm done. I'm done. 
But if you say that you didn't contemplate and prepare a little bit before that date, I would say that you're just not being self-aware of the actions that you started to take. You might have tried to convince yourself that you weren't a drunk, that you weren't a druggie, and that everything was going to be fine. But there was some level of contemplation and preparation for you to wake up that morning and say, that's it, we're done. Now, is that your first last time or your 20th last time, or is that your last last time? Only time will tell. For me, I just, that was it. I didn't know what day 2001 would be like or what day 1017 would be like. I had no idea. I just knew that today I was going to be sober and would figure out tomorrow, tomorrow. That action stage for me, that, that I kicked that off. The moment I looked at, I was covered in my own filth looking in that bathroom mirror. I mean, that's my origin story for all this. I tell this story on stage about how I woke up in that bathtub, freezing to death, covered in my own filth, looked in the mirror and was like, I don't want to die, but I've got to live differently. And I knew, I knew that was the day. I thought that day was going to be after the Super Bowl that year. And it was the year that the Patriots beat the Falcons after the Falcons had like a 27 to three lead. And I'll never forget that Super Bowl because Ron Sunshine, who I talk about at the beginning of the episode, and, and my coworker named Paul, um, I took them to the same Super Bowl party I'd always gone to, and they sat on either side of me, and they just supported me and encouraged me not to drink. And, and Super Bowl Sunday is my, I, it's my favorite holiday. I consider it a holiday. It's my favorite holiday. Then Fourth of July, and then who cares about the rest? <laughs> Those are definitely my two favorite holidays. Christmas shows up somewhere behind 4th of July and Super Bowl Sunday. And those were the two days I liked to get the most wasted. And so, you know, here we are two weeks later from me quitting alcohol and I'm I'm at a Super Bowl party. I'd blacked out, you know, a couple years prior. Um, I blacked out by halftime during the Broncos' gigantic loss to the Seahawks. And... um. I remember that one. I, remember, I, I vaguely the last thing I remember is Percy Harvin's returning the opening kickoff of the second half, and then I did a shot, and that was it. I don't remember anything past that. So when I woke up in the filth tub and 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 stepped into action that Friday morning and went into my workplace and told Ron, "That's it, we're done. I'm changing my life starting now." I didn't know where all this was going to lead me. I didn't have everything figured out. Somebody wrote a rather scathing review of the podcast over on iTunes. Um, by the way, we would love it if you would go over there and review the uh, podcast on iTunes. Even if you listen on Spotify, it would be super dope to have that because, trust me, Apple has a lot to do with how I show up on the Internet. And it would be cool if you go over there and support the show by giving me some props. Um, but the point of me bringing up that, other than to ask you to go over there and write a review, is that somebody wrote a pretty scathing review, um, and clearly he had a lot going on and wasn't stepping into personal responsibility on his end. But one of the funny things he wrote was that um, that not everybody has a Hollywood deal and podcasts and books and all this stuff waiting for them whenever they get sober. Or maybe he even said like they're we're not even motivated to do all that stuff. I wasn't either. <laughs> Day one and 11 and and 17 and 117, like none of this shit was in my, none of this was in my windshield. I had no idea. Somebody said, hey, you want to come to this leadership conference in South Florida in like May? So I was on my third or fourth month, just got my first brand new car my entire life, my Hyundai Santa Fe. Uh, So aptly titled, I call her Sobriya Fe for sobriety in Santa Fe. 
married together, so Briah Faye, because I'd never let myself have a nice car because I drunk, drove and drunk all the time. Drink and drive, drove and drunk, drove and drunk, whatever. I was always drinking and driving, so I wasn't going to have a nice car that I was potentially going to crash. So when I got sober, my mechanic told me it was finally time to get a new car, and I did, and I was super excited, and I still cherish that vehicle because of what she represents. She represents the beginning of my sobriety journey. And then I went to this leadership thing and was introduced to NLP, and I was just, I was, my mind was just taken aback. It was blown away. My mind was literally blown away by how powerful the mind can be, and mine wasn't where these other people were telling me it could be. And that became my fascination. Wow, I can literally heal my traumas by, by, by going inside my mind and unearthing all this stuff and, 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 and healing and fixing it and talking it out or, or whatever you know, would ultimately become. I was just blown away. And that's, they, they were the first ones to say NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, to me. I went out, started hunting down some, some teachers of it in Southern California, randomly showed up on a radio station outside of 24-hour fitness, um, literally. I was getting ready to turn the car off. I went to go push the the radio button down so it would go down one more station so that when I got in the car, it would be on the station I wanted it to be. But instead of hitting down, I hit up. And so it went to the station above it, which was a NPR station out of Santa Barbara. And that was Matt Browning doing a, a presentation of, uh, of how he teaches people how to speak from stage and be able to... Um, speak from stage and, and tell their story in a way that could help others heal, that could help others in their own journey of self-discovery. And I wanted to get into speaking about my sobriety and recovery journey. And this was like June or July, I was just past my six months. I just announced a Facebook land that I was sober. And it was a really big deal to me. I, I wanted to go and, and help other people just realize that, hey, sobriety is kick-ass. And yeah, my, I mean, I'm still a waiter. I still don't have the most fulfilling life. I'm still paying too much for rent. And, you know, it's, I don't have a savings account. I mean, life wasn't awesome, wasn't perfect, still isn't, still is not. But I, I wanted to, to tell people, like, look, I get it. 22 years of hardcore drug and alcohol abuse, and, and I've done it, and I'm happier for having made that decision. So I knew it would take some time for me to get comfortable speaking on stage. And when this guy offered the opportunity to learn how, I said, well, I'll go to his free three-day seminar by donating $250 to KPXK or KPFW or whatever it was, NPR to Santa Barbara. Not important what their call letters are. What was important is that before I even went into that gym, I called up that radio station. I gave him my credit card. I donated the $250 to the station. I got his you know, thumb drive full of cool stuff. And I got a ticket to his event. And I went in September and, or October, it was October 7th, uh, when, when the event was. And I walked in, I spent three days listening to this guy. And I was like, holy shit, this is, this is exactly what I've been looking for in my life. This is what, this is what my sobriety is going to be built upon, what this gentleman is talking about right now. I cannot wait to get involved. And I slapped a couple credit cards down, spent $20,000. I actually, <laughs> let me not just breeze over this story for a second. We'll talk, we've talked about neuro-linguistic programming, but this is how committed I, I got to this, that I had a Chase credit card and I had a Discover credit card. And both of their limits um, were like, four or five grand. Now, when I first moved to Los Angeles, quick backstory on my on, on what ended up going down with my finances. When I first moved to Los Angeles in May of 2009, 
my cousin knew this dude who, um, after knowing him for a couple months, he came around and he's like, hey, um, I know, here's the story I lied and told everybody, that he had told us that he was working on set for movies and they were paying him in these um, in these post office cashiers, like cashier's checks, right? And that he was getting paid in these cashier's checks and he needed somebody to, um, somebody's bank account, because he didn't have a bank account. He needed somebody's bank account to cash him into so that he could get his money for working the day on set, but that he would give it, he would give us $150 each for each one of these cashier checks. For like, right, you know, you go to a post office or you buy it. It's like you give them the cash, they give you a check. What he really, t- and this was the lie, that was the lie I told everybody in the aftermath. I was like, yeah, this guy was working on set and they were paying him in these things. And it turned out that they were counterfeit and he was stealing from us all along. Well, he was stealing from us all along. But what he told me was that he was helping drug dealers launder money. And this was the way that they were doing it, is that they were taking the money, they were buying these cashier's checks from a post office employee who was in on it, and then they were taking them and cashing them on other people's accounts, giving them 150 and that's how the money was cleaned. The whole thing might seem super fucking stupid and convoluted, but whenever you don't have a job and you're, and you're just new to L.A. and you're just trying to live hand to mouth, it seemed like, okay, sure, I'm helping somebody launder drug money, but screw it, I get $150 and I could do you know five of these things a week make 650 bucks without ever leaving my couch. More addictive behavior, right? So after about a, it didn't take very long for this whole thing to come crumbling down. And when it did, I was $13,000 in the hole to Bank of America. And that put me in the Texas system that ruined my credit. Um, Both my banks canceled my accounts. Um, Bank of America just took all my money. Wells Fargo canceled my accounts and sent me checks and was like, we don't want anything to do with you. You are, you are a thief. You're a bad, bad person. So for the next seven years, I couldn't even have a bank account. And when I got that job at the SLS in Beverly Hills, luckily they were able to set up some sort of like poor person's account. Um, so they could direct deposit into this company. And so, and I was able to get like a debit card and I was able to have a pseudo bank account, but it wasn't really a bank account. So I dealt with that for seven years, no credit, no nothing. I mean, it was miserable. I, if anybody wrote me a check, I had to go to those check cashing places that charge like 50 bucks to cash it. It was the whole thing was super, super shitty, super stupid, screwed my credit up, ruined me, ruined me for seven years until it went off my credit report. So I tell you that whole story because I don't want you to think, and you'll think whatever you think, that by the time you know uh, 2017 rolled around and uh, here I am at this conference, I was just rolling in dough. I was living hand to mouth, but somehow I had worked my way up to having two credit cards with $5,000 limits on them. And that alone was remarkable to me. Uh, I still didn't even have a normal bank account. And yet I was able to pull that off just by paying bills on time and asking for up, you know, for increases in my limits every six months. So why is that important to all this? Because his program was 10 grand. But if I spend another 10,000, I would become part of like his elite. 
and I would get all of these extra benefits that included more time with him, more time with the community, further, deeper trainings, further, deeper education. It was like, it was just like, oh my goodness, look at all this stuff I'll get. Plus for some reason, spending $10,000 learning how to become a public speaker and a life coach didn't seem like enough of a commitment. I needed it to be (laughs) $20,000. And so I spent an hour on the phone with Chase and Discover, getting them to double my limits so that I would be able to go up there and pay uh, and pay off this 20 grand. In the end, I was only able to pay, I think, 12,000 of it that first day, 6,000 on each card. But I got them to up my limit so I could do that. That's how like into this I got. Now, I don't tell that story. Um, I don't really have any subliminal messaging behind that other than to let you know like that was the level of commitment I was ready to take on in that moment to absolutely do something I had never done to achieve something I never thought I could. I was already nine months into my sobriety recovery. Things were going pretty well, but I came across this information and I was like, my goodness, I can learn NLP and I can learn how to become a professional speaker. I was like, who knows where this could take me? But it definitely will help me share my story and be more confident in myself to know that I could help others, help others see the light, help others step into sobriety and recovery. And that was just the first amount of money I spent. There was a lot more money down the line, but it meant that much to me that I was just like, I was all in. I was all in, not knowing where all in was even going to take me. I just knew that if I put my effort in, if I put, if I worked my ass off on what he was teaching, if I learned it and I applied it and I did something with it, life would take me where life is going to take me. Down the line, I ended up opening up a podcast called Everything's Interesting with Jesse Mogul, which led to From Sobriety Recovery, which led to College Success Habits, which led to the book and all the public speaking I do and, and all of this stuff that I do. It all started on that October 7 of 2017 when I went in there with an open mind and said, whatever this guy's ready to teach me, I'm ready to learn it, even if I never see him again. And truth be told, it really started on accident whenever I pushed that radio button. I'd been looking for some NLP teachers, and here's this guy on the radio talking about NLP. And I was just fascinated by the way that he talked about it. That, all of that was part of my action. All of that was part of me continuing to push myself outside of what I had previously known to achieve something I never thought was possible. The maintenance stage, right? I mean, I don't even know if I could really put my finger on when that happened. Was it when I got Melissa as my therapist, you know, going into month eight, into nine? Was it after my first year, after my second year, right? Like in a way, the action maintenance stages to me can also be doing a bit of a dance together. Because every day I'm taking action towards my sobriety and recovery. Even if that's just going to the gym or it's shooting a podcast or it's eating healthy or it's having an open communication full of love with my girlfriend or my friends and my family members, or if it's just reading a really cool book or journaling, like all of these things are part of the action and they can also be part of the maintenance. Yes, the action I took on day one is very, you know, varied. I I almost said very different, but I don't know how very different it is day one versus day 2001. I'm not obviously detoxing right now, and I've got 2,000 days under my belt, but I still wake up with hope and, and ambition and drive and wonderment about life. 
I still find it very fascinating to, you know, go bowling or go to uh, family events or go to fireworks displays and be sober there and not completely whacked out of my mind. Like we went and saw a fireworks display in a little town called Gurley um, out on some country road and and we showed up late. So I thought we were going to get bad seats, but instead we were super close, the closest I've ever been to a fireworks display being set off. And this is one of those city ones, right? Where they've got all those tubes and they shoot them up super high, but we were like less than a football field away. So our necks actually started hurting because we were looking up so much. And as the bombs are bursting in air and I'm playing patriotic music and I get it, the country's not going in the right direction for a lot of us. A lot of us are very frustrated with what's happening, but you know what? To me, my country isn't the politicians. It's not the divisiveness. It's the people who make it up. We all have our own needs that we're trying to fulfill. And some of us are looking at ways that we can bring everybody's needs to the table and we can discuss it in a mature, emotionally intelligent way. So everybody feels heard and everybody has a chance to succeed and prosper. That's what the 4th of July means to me. It's this melding of of all these different kinds of people in a good direction. Are we always going in the right direction? No, we're not. But But we're trying. Some of us are trying. And by listening to this show, you're part of the solution. So some people are like, ah, you know, the country this, the country that. I'm like, you know what? My country is not my politicians. My country is me. My country is you. You are my country. And here at this show, we're about releasing judgment of right or wrong, and we're seeking to understand people at a deeper, more emotionally intelligent manner. We're looking to discover ourselves in a way we've never thought we could possibly discover ourselves. That's how I wake up on 2001, feeling the same way I did on one. That's how come I'm getting chills in my arms as I pace back and forth in my office, and this whole thing's turned into like a soapbox diatribe, because it's 2001 days, and I can't wait till 4,002 days. I can't wait till 16,017 days. I don't know if that's possible. That might make me like 120. But the point being is that wherever you're at, pre-contemplation, contemplation, contemplation, planning, um, the preparation stage, I mean, action, maintenance, wherever you're at, that's where you're at. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And if you've worked for a year and you take a slide back, or you've worked for five years and you take a slide back, or you've worked for five days and you take a slide back, it doesn't matter. You do not have to beat yourself up over it. You do not have to kick yourself in the teeth. The world has no problem doing that for you. Why would you want to do it to yourself? Or maybe you haven't had a relapse. Maybe things are going fine and they're dandy. And you just step back one day and you say, you know what, I'm still not creating the life I've always wanted to create for myself. I still do not have the life and the lifestyle that I desire. Let's talk about that. Let's figure that out. Day one, day 2001. They are absolutely separated by 2,000 days. But to me right now, walking back and forth in this office, it might as well have been yesterday. Some people say that the further you get away from your last drink, the closer you get to your next one. Some people say that if you don't call yourself an addict, then you'll forget where you came from and you'll think you can go back. Some people say that you got to remember the pain every single day in order to make sure that it's fresh and it's at the surface so that you don't forget it and so that you don't think that you can just go back to your old ways and everything will be fine. And whether I agree or disagree with any of that is, is a moot point. For me, I don't have to think about day one every single day. 
to be able to sit here on this microphone and my mind goes back there and it's like it was yesterday. It's like it just happened 10 minutes ago. The human mind records every single thing that you do. You do not have to constantly remember it in order to be able to retain it, in order to be able to recall it. Fill your mind up with the wonderment and the beauty of the life you desire to create for yourself. And then get to fucking creating it. Somebody writing some whack review of the show saying they didn't have Hollywood deals and they didn't have book deals and all this stuff. I had none of that. I didn't even know I wanted any of that. Yeah, 18-year-old Jesse had insane ambition and so did 25 and 30-year-old. And I mean, I moved to Hollywood for ambition. But what did I really think I could achieve? I don't know, it was daydreams. I turned daydreams into reality because every single day I got up and I took action. That's what this whole episode was supposed to be about. It was about how discipline isn't even really discipline. It's habits. There was a whole quote that Aristotle said that actually was Will Durant about how um, excellence, um, excellence is more about habit than it is about action, that it's about consistency. And that's what we'll talk about next week. But discipline, right? So a little precursor to next week, and then we'll get you out of here because we're already at 48 minutes and I do, <laughs> I do this all the time. But it's like, I can inspire you. This whole thing today was meant to inspire you. It wasn't meant to, there's not any level of bragging. Hey, look what I did with my bank account. Or hey, look what I did by trying to you know help drug dealers freaking do money this. And look at how much money I spent on this shit. Whatever, man. This was just the, I'm just telling you my truth. I'm just telling you the life that I lived that got me here. This is my lived experience. You have an amazing lived experience. If you would like to figure out ways to share it, I can help you with that. If not, I'm sure other people could too. The point is, is that I can inspire you in these moments. What you do when this episode's over, that's your motivation. Inspiration is external. Motivation is internal. I've inspired you. Now, what are you going to motivate yourself to do? When you motivate yourself, that's when you start to take action. Right? And the more you take, and what do you use when you first start to take action? That's where you use your discipline. That's where you say, you know what, I'm going to continue doing this day in and day out, even if I'm tired, even if I don't feel like it. It's like jump roping or playing the ukulele. Not every day I feel like doing those things, but I promised myself that I would do them, so I do them. 10,000 steps, is uh, that, they're, they're, that's it. I, I made that commitment. I'm not going to break that commitment to myself. I'm just not. If that means I'm walking outside at 11.59 to get my last 200 steps, then that's just what I'm doing because that's what I told myself to do. But it's past. It's beyond discipline now. Discipline is what you use in those first few weeks. Then it becomes habit. And from that habit becomes the maintenance of monitoring it, being self-aware, making sure that the habit of 10,000 steps isn't actually turned from beneficial to detrimental. Am I missing out on time with my friends and family? Am I ignoring my girlfriend? Does my left knee hurt? And by getting more and more steps every day, I'm actually causing the knee to get worse. Like that's the maintenance stage. That inspiration stage, that's that contemplation area. You start to get inspired to change, right? Whenever you actually get into the action stage, right? That's whenever you start to change the behavior. That's when your discipline kicks in. When your first couple days, weeks, months of sobriety, a lot of that's going to be discipline. A lot of that's going to be the willpower. But eventually you turn it into habit. And using alcohol and drugs, it's a habit. It's a habit that was born from the emotional trauma that we didn't heal from as children because we were raised by emotionally unintelligent people who didn't know how to help us heal because they themselves were unhealed. 
And so as you utilize your discipline and you start to create new habits, that's the action stage. And before you know it, you've just turned it into a habit. When I almost paralyzed myself at the bottom of the ocean back on like May 9th of 2019 during the pandemic, you know, or whenever I moved out here and I fell on some tough times financially because I, I couldn't get myself stabilized and my business dried up because I left all my clients in Southern California for a whole new world and, you know, Southern or Northern Alabama, right? Like some people could have seen that as reasons to get triggered to drink. I saw them as reasons to buckle down, figure some stuff out and make it happen for myself. The trigger can go leading you back the, the, down a, the old path or it can lead you to forging a new path. But you're making that decision. I can only inspire you to make the best possible choice for yourself. You have to motivate yourself to do that. Again, whether you're at day one or 11 or 111 or 2001 like I am, we're not different. Each and every day, I still make the choice to be sober. Each and every day, I choose to actively be a part of my addiction recovery. Each and every day, I choose to live. Because you listen to this show, I know you're choosing to live too. And if there's any way I can help you live an even more fulfilled life, you know how to get a hold of me. There are so many links in the show notes. It's almost obnoxious how many different ways I have for people to get a hold of me. And I definitely made the mistake a couple years ago of having like four different email addresses because, man, is that super complicated to keep track of. But either way, you know how to find me if you want more guided assistance. You could join the hub. You could be a part of the tribe. You could do one-on-one groups. It is whatever it is. All I ask of you is that you step into whatever decision you're ready to make 100%. If you woke up this morning feeling like shit, hungover, ate up, wondering where the hell your life is going, today could be that day that you really start to contemplate and prepare. And maybe you already have been, so now today's the day to take the action. Wherever you're at, understand, it's the best place for you to be. This is where your life has led you. Don't beat yourself up for the decision you didn't make yesterday. Applaud yourself for being ready to make the decision today. And then take action on that and allow your discipline to help create it into a habit. And then each and every day, you monitor it like your life depended on it. And you embrace it and you hold it and you cherish it for what it is. Because for me, sobriety was just the first step. It was just the key that unlocked the door. Everything else beyond that door, I have created I have nurtured, I have fostered, I have watered, I have loved. None of this stuff stays around if it doesn't get my attention. And it all definitely goes away if I go back to who I used to be. 2001 days. And tomorrow, it's 2002. As always, my friends, inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy, release and flow. I truly honestly do believe that every day is the best day of my life because I wake up sober because I know what it's like to wake up hungover. I know what it's like to wake up and roll over and grab that bottle of whiskey and drink it before I've even hit, before my feet have even hit the floor. Every day really is the best day of my life because I wake up sober and I, and I make sure I remind myself of that because it's a blessing to even be alive let alone be able to say that. 
I wish Ron Sunshine Davis was still alive to see where all of this has led me. And it's sad that we lost him due to COVID during all of that stuff. But that's why I say shout out to Sunshine. And as always, glow on my friends. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.